Let me just add my greetings to everyone this morning and to our guests. If you're here, you are especially welcome, and I hope you feel that way because it's true. And for those at home, uh, we're glad to have you joining us online as well. So I want to start today doing something a little different. Um, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, and I want you to use your imagination. If you don't have an imagination, there's no need to close your eyes here. But, uh, of course, we all have an imagination, so I want to invite you to maybe have a little experience with Jesus this morning rather than your normal routine of hearing me talk about uh, my experiences with Jesus, let's say. So close your eyes, and I just want you in your mind to go to some place that's really comfortable for you. It could be your favorite chair at home, place in nature, maybe a vacation spot that you liked. And I want you to just get comfortable and um, somewhere quiet where you can relax. You're not tired. You're not tired. You just got some space so you can kind of take a deep breath and relax. Matter of fact, go and just take a deep breath. Nothing major. Just I want you to Wherever you're at, just turn your head and notice Jesus there. He didn't make some grand entrance. He's just there too. And he's comfortable. He's comfortable with you. He's comfortable here. He's doing the same thing. You're just both enjoying a moment of stillness and peace. So in the context of this comfort with each other, I want you to just kind of notice. You, you kind of hear him, sense him leaning forward, and you look over at him. And he, and he just... Peacefully says, you know, there's something I've been thinking about. A question I want to ask you. And he, with that really friendly, smiling, sort of excited, I'm really interested to talk about it face, he says, do you, do you understand what I've done for you? Now, don't answer, not yet. Just smile back at him. Because you know he loves this question. And just look away from him and, and at something and, and ponder for a minute. And think to yourself, man, that, that's actually a really great question. Do I? Do I understand fully what Jesus has done for me? Just take a minute and ponder that. Where does your mind go? Do parts of his life pop into your mind? Does some teaching? Is there some event from your life that really captures for you what he's done for you? Does that come rushing into your memory? What all has Jesus done for you in his work, in his life, in his ministry? What has he offered you? What is your understanding? Okay, you can open your eyes and you can see on the screen this question that I had you imagine him asking is an actual question of Jesus from his life. He was sitting with his disciples in a, well, a similar place to where you just were with Jesus, a comfortable place in the midst of a busy world. He was comfortable with them. They were comfortable with him. They had a moment of peace to take a breath and it's in John 13 where he says to his, those first disciples, do you understand what I've done for you? 
And of course, there's a context to this story, and we'll get to that here in a minute. But it's amazing that when you go through the first four books of the New Testament, which is, they're all they're the same story four different times, the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can pluck out the questions of Jesus right out of their context and put them into your space and just have them asked, just like you just did, out of context of Scripture. And they are always, it's like the Holy Spirit planned it, they're always still really engaging and probing and meaningful. As a matter of fact, I'll just, if you need a new way to approach Scripture, go to those Gospels and just read through and underline all of the questions of Jesus and either imagine yourself in the scene of the story and him asking you the question, however, or just go to that place you just did. So that's a great way, another way, a lens through which you can get to know and fall in love with Jesus um, and experience him. So I just give you that for free. But I really just, I just want to use this question for this next three-week series. I want to answer it. I want to use it to talk about what is it exactly that Jesus has done for us in his work. So next week, Easter Sunday, we'll be talking about what Christ has done in the resurrection. That's part of his work. What is, what is, what is he offered to us in that? And then I'm excited the next week to talk about one we don't talk about a lot, and that's his ascension. What did Jesus offer you in his ascension? But this week, I want to take a bit of a brisker walk through Holy Week. Only three days of Holy Week. We're going to look at Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And Holy Week is just the week before the resurrection. And there's significant things that have happened on each day. And Christianity has traditionally looked at those events to soak them, to wring them out of what it is about the gospel that is contained in the work of Jesus each day. So there's three, at least three, big offers, big gifts to you in his work on that Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So um, they are called in the Christian calendar, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday. It's sometimes called Dark Saturday, but, but it's traditionally called Holy Saturday. So first is Maundy Thursday. Now that might be a weird word for you, Maundy. What is that? It comes from a Latin word that we get our English word mandate. Okay, so you can think of it as Mandate Thursday because of what happened here. So this is actually where we're going to look at. This is where he washed the disciples' feet. And this is actually where the question that we're pondering for this series came from. And right before he asked that question, he had washed the disciples' feet. Now, you need to understand because we don't understand the profound and significant and shocking move that it was in the midst of that meal for Jesus to get up and wash the disciples' feet. We, it doesn't matter. I'm going to try, but we will not get the gap that was spanned there. In no context does the host of some banquet or meal or does the honored guest of some banquet or meal, and Jesus is both those. He's the host and the honored guest, they are not the ones that ever get up to wash the feet of those in attendance. That is reserved for the least of the least of the servants. And then you add to that, just in their Jewish context, this is their rabbi. They are the disciples. If any, And they've noticed this is a special rabbi. They've even called him son of God already. And they, are, they, are, they realize we're his servants. And so for him to get up, disrobe and wash their feet. What was he doing? He was offering something to them. He was offering something. He was bridging a gap. He was going down to their level. And keep in mind, 
he had already done this in a shocking way. Okay, they were still learning this, but we know Jesus is the incarnation of God. That's just the $5 word for in the flesh. God, the creator, became the created. It's the largest gap that has ever been spanned by any being socially. And so he did that, and now he's doing it in a way that they can see and understand in their culture. And this is bizarre. Remember, Peter said, whoa, what are you doing? If you know the story, Peter said, you, I'm, not, I'm not letting you wash my feet. Of course, he said something to get him to do that. What was he doing all this bridging of this gap for? Why was he breaking all these rules? He was offering them something. And what was it? He explains, if you turn the page in Scripture to John 15... He says, he explains this, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. My command, my mandate, my mandate is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command, my my mandate, if you do what I mandate. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I have made known to you. This is an incredible scene. This scene changed my life. Jesus was offering in word and in deed friendship. Friendship. God. God doesn't want you to just have him as your God. God wants you to have friendship with him. Now, I've used this text many times in smaller settings to give a theology of how we build friendships. I think this is a pretty good guide. I'm somewhat obsessive about Jesus and look for him to model what I want to be and, and, so if, and what I need. So here I see friendship. So just working backwards. We're friends when we share everything. Did you hear that? They, he elevated them from servant to friendship. And he said, I did that because everything that God's revealed to me, everything I am, everything I've, I know, I have told you. I've revealed it to you. Friends share everything. That's like intimacy is built in that way. He says, we're friends when we have something in common that we're pursuing together. Have you noticed this? When there's an overlap and and the more meaningful what we pursue, the more intimate the friendship. And he says, you're my friends if you obey my mandate, who I am, what I teach, what I'm about. If you've joined in, we're friends. And then he says one more thing. I'm working backwards here. He says, the greatest act of friendship is seen when someone lays down their life for someone else in small ways, but also in the ultimate way. He was foreshadowing here. He knew what was coming the next day, and he wanted them to remember when he was hanging on that cross and he was dying. He didn't want them to just be introduced to him as Savior. He wanted them to remember what he said the day before. You're my friends. I'm dying for my friends. He's offering friendship. So it's useful to kind of for us to know how to Build friendship, and it might explain when we don't have them, why we don't have them. But the, the thing I want to focus on today is, is this idea that God wants to be 
your friend. That's the offer of Thursday. And this is a big deal because you know when you have friendship with someone, what that does is it gives you special access to all of their power and influence, right? Their domain. When you say, oh, I have a friend that can help you with that. See, there's a connection there that something they can do is going to be offered to someone else. That's what happens. I was signing up for a retreat. This is decade, over a decade ago. I was signing up for a retreat that was really popular, still is. It was based on a popular book, a Christian retreat, men's retreat. And when people signed up, you're really signing up, I found out, for a lottery, for the hope of getting in. Okay? You, because people all over the world are wanting to go on these retreats, and these men retreat, men's retreats only happen three times a year or so. But through a friend, I met a man who became my friend. His name's Bart, and he's on the leadership team of these retreats. And so when I said, hey, I'm interested in going to those retreats, he goes, yeah, sign up online. And hey, listen, in the discount code box online, put my name, put Bart in there. I've got, I've got five guys I'm, I want to bring with, put, tell them to all put my name, put Bart in there. And you'll get in. And so I didn't realize how incredible this was until I was at the retreat. My guys were all sitting at a meal, and there's this group over here talking. We overhear them saying, they have tried nine times to get to this retreat. And I, I, I heard that, and I went, I, I feel guilty. Why? Why am I getting to come the first time I try? You know why. Because I put the name of my friend in there. And he has authority and domain here. And we're friends. Jesus. He says, have you thought about his domain, his authority? He says in Matthew, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And he gives you his name. He gives you friendship. He offers friendship. Then Good Friday, an ironic title for the most unjust, horrific day in human history. The brutal torture and crucifixion of this blameless, sinless Jesus. We don't typically enjoy reflecting on injustice, do we? Like, we turn away. Something's coming on the news that's going to show something unjust, and there's a disclaimer. You might want to guard your children, have your children leave the room. You know, when we think about injustices, whether, whether they were committed in history or they were committed to us or, they were, or we committed it to someone else in our path, we just want to block it out. We do not want to think about it. We do not want to see it. We do not want to be reminded of how low we are capable of going as human beings. And this is the moment, Friday, the event on Friday, the crucifixion, it's the moment that is the lowest of the low, the most unjust, horrific thing. And yet Paul, reflecting on this day and what happened, he actually says in 1 Corinthians that he puts all of his attention on this day. He didn't draw back. He focuses on it. He says that he resolved to know nothing except Jesus and him crucified. What? Why is he drawn to that? What? It's horrific. It's horrendous. Human reaction to these kind of injustices is to turn away, forget it. But he, he's obsessing on it. And we've agreed with him, haven't we? We've taken the emblem from that day. And it is the most distinguishable characteristic of our faith. 
We have it. We put them up in our churches. We build versions of it into our logo. We wear it on our, on our hats and our t-shirts. And we make them beautiful and do jewelry about them. We have them on the walls of our house. This capital punishment tool has become the most identifiable thing from this most horrific and torturous and ugly act. Why? What? We've labeled the day that this most unjust thing is good. Good Friday. What is, what exactly did Jesus do in his work on the cross that it is so powerful that it overwhelms all of our normal human inclinations to turn away. All of our understanding just re- it's, it stands to reason we're not going to put an electric chair on the walls of our house and wear that around our neck. Why in the world? What, is, what did he do that's so powerful that it overcomes all that strikes, all those strikes against the cross and made it that thing? Again, we go to Paul to explain. In Colossians 1, he says, For God was so pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Okay, all right, thanks, Paul. Thanks for clearing that up. What does that mean for me? He continues. He says, get specific. Once you, you'll get this, you were alienated from God. Why? Because of your sins. Once you were alienated from God because of your evil behavior and enemies in your minds. But now he has reconciled that relationship. He's reconciled you through Christ's physical body, through that death. For what? To present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Do you understand what Jesus has done for you on that cross in his work on Friday? You are forgiven. He offers you the forgiveness of God. I want you to think about it. You're not going to think about it. But I want you to think about it, that thing. You know that thing that you did. You you maybe haven't thought about it in a long time. You've done your best to squash it. You don't want to remember it. The thing. That emotionally, if, if not intellectually, maybe you go, no, 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 I, I believe, I believe I'm forgiven. But emotionally, it doesn't let you go. It reminds you, you know what I'm talking about, the thing you did that disqualifies you from God. That disqualifies you. You know it. You think about it and you hide under the covers because you know it's the thing that emotionally, you know, that's just too far. I know maybe you can love everyone else, but not me because of what I did. It's the thing that disqualifies you from the kingdom, from heaven, from God. I want you to think about that thing because you know what happened on the cross on that Friday? That thing became just nothing but a demonstration to God. He lifts it up. It's a demonstration of just how good he is, of just how great the gospel is. It is now just that thing that has taken your knees out from under you. It's just a demonstration of how good he is. Don't believe me? I've got a verse. It's in Romans 5. It says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. In what? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That thing, your sin, does not disqualify you from relationship with God. On the contrary, 
You don't need the work of Friday if you don't have that thing. He did it for that. It quali- your sin qualifies you for what Jesus offers you on Friday. Not the other way around. I can't believe there are so many Christians. Kyle alluded to this in, in this subtle teaching that somehow makes its way through the church through the ages. I can't believe how many people think, yeah, yep, I'll, I'll receive Christ. I'll be baptized. I'll decide to follow him. I just need to clean some things up first. That's Friday. That's his job. Don't try. You'll stink at it. And it'll wear you out and it won't work and your heart will know. And the worst thing you might do is attribute that all to God and get bitter and resentful and not know why and run from Christianity and run from Christ. You are forgiven. That sin All that sin, all of it, you're forgiven. Then you turn to Holy Saturday. It's sometimes called Dark Saturday. You'll understand why here in a minute. So the gift of Thursday is friendship with God. The gift of Friday is forgiveness, the forgiveness of God. And the gift offered on Saturday is faith in God. That's the invitation of Jesus on Saturday. Now, let me explain. We don't have a lot in the text about Saturday. And to me, I've come to believe that's what's notable. There's not a lot to take note of of the disciples on Saturday. And I believe it's because they missed it. See, Jesus, you remember, months earlier, Jesus started revealing to them what's going to happen. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to come back to life. And they just lost, they, they, they were like, what does he mean? What do you, I think he's talking in parables again. What does he mean he's going to die, then he's going to come back to lie? I mean, he, is, he says it many times. They just, they just don't get it. He can't say it plainer, but they're like, I, I, just, I just don't understand. I think this is how some of you wives think about us as husbands. You know, you're like, I've said it just as clearly as I possibly can, and you just, I don't really understand what you want from me here. And so it's, it, I think that's what Jesus is Dealing with. He goes this far. He goes, guys, we're, we're close. It's about to happen. So I'm going to go to Jerusalem. The chief priests, all them, they're going to kill me. Then when I come back to life, like I told you, I want to have a meeting at that place where we've been meeting, right there on that mountain, okay? I'll see you all there. And they're like, well, I wonder what he means by the mountain. Is that a place in our heart, maybe? Is that, what, what does it symbolize? I'm not quite getting it. They don't get it. We understand that their experience Saturday was not what it was supposed to be because they didn't believe what Jesus told them. They didn't get it. We know by looking at all of their responses when he tried to tell them. We know by how they reacted on Friday when Jesus was killed. They distanced himself. Even before, Peter denied him. Like, I don't even know that guy when they saw things going badly. They didn't get it. And we know because of when they did see him after the fact, their reaction was, uh, uh, Like he hadn't told them. See, Saturday would have been a totally different experience. And we probably would have some scripture about it. Because when he was killed, they would have been on that day going, Oh my, oh my, this is what he said. This is what he said. I wonder when it's going to happen. They probably camped out by the grave. I mean, they would have, they would have waited for, they would have said, we'd have a first-hand report of how the stone rolled away. Did an angel do it? We're just guessing. I don't know. But they didn't believe it was going to happen. So that day would have been totally changed. This is why it's sometimes called Dark Saturday. Rather than what it is. Holy Saturday. It's an invitation to faith. It's an invitation to believe. Now this is the one you can relate to the most. We've all got experiences with this. 
It's funerals. Right here. I've done tons of funerals right here. A bunch of my brothers have too. And there's a stark difference between people who are burying their loved ones who don't believe in the resurrection, in the Jesus story, and those that do. Those that don't, it's the saddest day. It is a dark Saturday, those funerals, because they have no hope. They have nowhere to go. No larger story. No belief in what Jesus said and proved in his body and in his words. That death's not the end. That there's no hope. The best case scenario is just a light form of depression and sadness for the rest of their life and loss. Christians, on the other hand, who believe what Jesus said, I can't tell you how many people, I go to their houses ready to mourn and grieve, and we do that, of course. There's a temporary nature to it, though. And they say, we don't even want to call it a funeral. We want to call it a celebration. What? This is death. This is the end of your life with a loved one. And you want to call it a celebration? It's because they are people of faith. Death sting doesn't sting quite as much for those. But Saturday would have looked totally different. Totally different if those disciples had faith in what Jesus had tried to tell them. He offers that and so much more. So let me... Let me, let me ask our elders and our ministers and their spouses. They're going to move around the room and go out in the foyer and just be available if you need to respond as I wrap up here today. I want you to go back to that safe space. You can close your eyes again. I'm not going to do anything up here worth seeing, so you can close your eyes again. You don't have to, but you can. Just pick up right where you left off. You were, remember he was asking you and you were thinking. Now that you've pondered it, I want you to turn and look at him with a smile and say, Jesus, you know, you ask me if I understand what you've done for me. Just look at him and say, I think so. But would you tell me again? Would you just tell me again? Now I want you to see him just smile back at you. Like, it's like you know him too. You know he wants to say it again. He loves telling you this. He loves reviewing it with you. And so he sits back wherever y'all are. He says, I've given you my friendship. We're friends. He says, he looks at you and he says, I consider you a friend. And then he says, he leans back forward and he says, hey, and I've purchased forgiveness for you. You get that right? All that stuff. You're forgiven by God. And then he sits back and he says comfortably, and I'm inviting you to faith. You can Bank on what I've told you. And then he leans back forward. He says, death isn't even death. Did you realize this? Death isn't even death. Death is, death is, it's another birth. You understand what I've done for you, right? You understand this. I've given you a firm foundation. I am your firm foundation. My word, it is faithful. It is mighty. It is powerful. God will deliver you. I'm yours. You're mine. And he sits back and just says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he looks at you and he says, and we're friends. Don't you forget it. We're friends. Claim him. Receive his work. Stand secure as you leave that safe space and go back into this crazy world. We all need it.
He's yours. You're his. Let's stand and let's sing.